Hi there, I'm Chris Kessling and welcome to Defence Barrister, the podcast on understanding and surviving criminal trials, sentencing and appeals. Today in episode five, we are continuing on our journey through the criminal justice system in England and Wales with our second court appearance, this time at the Crown Court where our defendants, Aidan, Bianca and Connor, are facing a charge of murdering 23-year-old Daniel Clark during a fight outside a nightclub early on Saturday morning. To catch up on how they arrived at where they are now, please go back and listen to episodes one to four, where you can find out about why they were all arrested and all about powers of arrest for both the police and civilians, what happened to them in the police station and the rights of suspects in police custody, and the approach they took to answering police questions during their interviews under caution, all having taken advantage of their right to free legal advice. You can also hear all about what is meant by joint enterprise and in episode three, all about the offence of murder, the charge which all of our defendants now jointly face. In episode four, we took our first steps into court and introduced the magistrate's court where the first appearance took place and the Crown Court and how it is that all cases start in the magistrate's court but just a tiny percentage make their way to the Crown Court either for sentence or for trial before a judge and jury. It's now Wednesday morning and Aidan, Bianca and Connor have spent the last two nights in prison having been remanded in custody by the district judge at the Magistrates' Court on Monday. As we heard, the Magistrates' Court has no power to grant bail in murder cases, so this can only be granted by a Crown Court judge, which is one reason why, in this case, the case has been quickly listed for a first Crown Court appearance. Usually, the first appearance at a Crown Court is called the Plea and Trial Preparation Hearing, unless the case was listed specifically for a sentence, such as a committal for sentence that we looked at in episode four, or for a guilty plea if that was indicated in the magistrate's court and the case was then sent to the Crown Court. Again, something we looked at in episode four. But in the normal course of events, when a case passes through the magistrate's court and is sent for trial to the Crown Court, the first appearance is the plea and trial preparation hearing or what's usually just referred to as the PTPH, which is when the defendant is arraigned, meaning the charge is put to them and they plead either guilty or not guilty. And then, if they enter a not guilty plea, a trial date is set and directions are given to ensure that all the evidence is served and the trial will be ready to start on the intended trial date. In murder cases, things are different because a defendant charged with murder having been denied the opportunity to apply for bail in the magistrate's court will often want to take that opportunity as soon as possible, which will be at their first appearance in the Crown Court. So this case has been speedily listed for a first Crown Court hearing well before the formal PTPH takes place. When Aidan, Bianca and Connor arrive at the Crown Court on Wednesday morning, they're taken to their individual cells under the Crown Court building, where they wait for a visit from their lawyers. Up until now, the only lawyers they have met were the individual solicitors who advised them at the police station and subsequently represented them in court, in the magistrate's court. But today, they'll all meet a second kind of lawyer, by which I mean their barristers. 
So what are barristers, what are solicitors, and what roles do they play in the criminal justice system? Barristers and solicitors form the two main branches of the legal profession. Barristers form a far smaller part in that there are currently around 17,000 practising barristers as compared with around 163,000 practising solicitors. So barristers make up around 10% of the current practising legal profession. Across this group, barristers and solicitors will specialise in particular areas of practice, from family law to civil law, civil law covering the broadest spectrum, from personal injury and clinical negligence to housing, construction, commercial law and employment law. Only a small percentage of all lawyers will specialise in crime, which many other lawyers wouldn't touch with a barge pole, frankly, and is often viewed as the wild west of legal practice. And in many ways, it is. Contrary to what many people believe, although increasingly the message is getting through, criminal law is not well paid, since many criminal practitioners, barristers and solicitors alike, represent clients who themselves have limited incomes and therefore rely on legal aid to fund their representation. And whatever political party you may support, over the years, through governments of all political colours, Legal aid has been the victim of brutal cuts, such that the criminal lawyers have in their droves either left the profession or moved into other more lucrative areas of practice. In fact, it's now reached the stage that many trials can't actually get started due to a lack of available criminal lawyers. On the other hand, when I was deciding what sort of lawyer I wanted to be, crime became the obvious, in fact, for me, the only choice. I'd done work experience at a large, what's known as a magic circle commercial law firm, which was crammed full of solicitors racking up huge bills with their billable hours. I even worked in their aircraft finance department, having previously had no idea that aircraft finance departments even existed. But what sealed it for me was doing work experience, what's known as a mini pupillage, with a set of chambers based in Gray's Inn in London, I was sent down to the Central Criminal Court, the Old Bailey, to sit behind the defence barrister, a very pleasant and, frankly, extraordinarily talented advocate, to watch a murder case get underway. I remember the respect the prosecution and defence barristers had for each other, despite going head-to-head -head in the courtroom. I even remember, as the prosecution barrister rose to his feet to open the case to the jury, that he looked at the defence barrister and gave him a wink, then launched into his opening. And what an opening it was, so clear, precise and detailed, delivered in a way that wrapped you up and pulled you in and took you to the scene of the crime so that you could visualise it. A man walking along a snow-covered road holding a knife in his hand which glinted in the morning sunlight before carrying out the serious offence upon which, in due course, the jury had to reach a verdict. And for me, that was it. That was what I wanted to do, and I set about getting the experience I needed to get pupillage, which is the form of apprenticeship all barristers have to do, and then a tenancy, which is when a set of chambers invites you to join them and become part of the fold, from where you set about cultivating your own practice and becoming a small but, you hope, important part of the criminal justice system. But back to criminal lawyers more generally. Things have changed a bit over time, but the traditional difference between solicitors and barristers was the role they played in the criminal justice system. 
As we've seen with Aidan, Bianca and Connor, solicitors provide legal advice to clients at the police station, so are almost always the first lawyers to meet suspects in criminal cases. Solicitors, unlike barristers, also often have high street premises with a list of practice areas on their shop windows to help you. So even if you haven't been arrested and taken to the police station, but you still need legal advice or representation, a solicitor will often be the first person you choose to go to. That fits with the name solicitor, a derivation which originates from at least the early 15th century, meaning one who conducts matters on behalf of another. For people who require legal aid, a solicitor will be able to make that application for you. They'll sit down with you and get your story, having the ability to discern and extract the relevant parts from the irrelevant parts to get to the real essence of your case. They can also write letters for you on official solicitors-headed notepaper, contact potential witnesses and instruct experts for further information to support your case. And if that wasn't enough, they can also attend court with you, explain procedures and represent you where necessary. It's a fallacy for anyone to think that solicitors and barristers, for that matter, are only there for strictly legal matters, since they also provide for many people a well-needed crutch to support them through what can be some of the most difficult times of their lives. So what then does a barrister do? The term barrister is derived from call to the bar, call being when a person officially becomes a barrister by being called to the bar by one of the four inns of court, which are the honourable societies of Gray's Inn, Lincoln's Inn, Middle Temple and Inner Temple. Each courtroom used to have a rail or bar dividing the area used by the lawyers from the general public, and only barristers were allowed to step up to the bar to argue cases on behalf of their clients. It's worth mentioning that being called to the bar does not in itself allow you to go into practice. For that, you need a full practising certificate, which means completing pupillage, and that's the apprenticeship that you need to do as a barrister, which lasts for a minimum of 12 months. And you need to pass several further exams, including professional ethics and advocacy. And you need to be accepted by a set of chambers as a tenant or by an organisation that employs barristers, such as the CPS. Unlike a solicitor who meets a client from the outset, Traditionally, a barrister comes into the mix later on in a case. As a general overview, barristers are known for two things. Their legal expertise in a particular area of practice and sometimes a really niche area within that broader area. And they're also known for their skills as advocates, by which I mean their ability to conduct cases by making opening and closing speeches to juries, questioning witnesses both in examination-in-chief and cross-examination, and making submissions, i.e. advancing legal arguments before judges, whether in the Magistrates Court, the Crown Court, the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court, and sometimes even in the European Court of Human Rights. So essentially, their ability to address a courtroom is one clear reason to instruct a barrister. What this means in practice is that it's solicitors who will instruct a barrister on behalf of their client, the solicitor already having done much of the legwork and heavy lifting to prepare the case. They'll instruct the barrister for legal advice, i.e. to get an opinion on their client's case from a legal perspective, or they'll instruct them for representation at court, i.e. 
Can you please pick this case up and do your best to seek this client's acquittal at trial? This is what's meant by briefing a barrister. In the old days, a brief was a pile of papers tied together with pink ribbon or white ribbon if you were prosecuting. But nowadays, briefs are sent electronically, although the old gods still insist on printing out the main pages since there's some things, and I include myself in this, you can't get used to. So some barristers are definitely still old school in that sense. Once a barrister is briefed, they will often have a conference with a client to obtain further information, although on many occasions, the first time a barrister meets a client will be in court. And this is exactly what happens with Aidan, Bianca and Connor, who've all been granted legal aid and all of whom will meet their barristers for the first time in the Crown Court that Wednesday morning. To complete the barristers and solicitors' explanation, I mentioned that solicitors, particularly criminal solicitors, often have high street premises. Criminal barristers, on the other hand, are largely self-employed and work from chambers, which are buildings in which they work together with a group of other barristers and pool their resources to pay for the building and office space and for staff and administration. Barristers' chambers are often known by their addresses or the streets or places they're situated in, whereas solicitors' firms usually go by the surnames of their founding partners. The staff in a barrister's chambers are usually referred to as the clerks, and they organise the barrister's diaries, organise the receipt and collection of briefs from solicitors, and in non-legal aid cases, negotiate fees with solicitors for individual cases. There's a head clerk, who in reality is the boss, and also a head of chambers, who'll be one of the more senior barristers in chambers and ensures that the place is running and performing as it should and is complying with all requirements, especially those imposed by the Bar Standards Board, the BSB, which is the independent regulator for barristers. The equivalent regulatory body for solicitors is the SRA, or Solicitors Regulation Authority. Barristers and solicitors also have representative organisations which fight their corner on multiple issues of the day. And for barristers, this is the Bar Council, and for solicitors, it's the Law Society. I mentioned that the overview of barristers and solicitors I've given you is the traditional view, and for many it still holds true. That said, there are many solicitors who gain an additional qualification to allow them to represent clients not just in the magistrate's court, but also in the higher courts, such as the Crown Court and the Court of Appeal. This qualification is called higher rights and allows the solicitor to become an HCA or higher court advocate and therefore to perform a dual role of not only the solicitor thoroughly preparing the case as I've described, but also to act as the defendant's advocate in the Crown Court. Barristers, as I've mentioned, still receive the majority of their work from solicitors, but in a break from tradition can also accept what are known as direct access cases, also known as direct public access cases, and these come of course direct from the public although they too need to undergo additional training and be registered with the Bar Council to do this. Bear in mind that it was, I think, only in 2010 that the public access scheme came into being for criminal cases. Before this, for an individual to gain access to a criminal barrister, they'd first have to instruct a solicitor who would then, in turn, instruct the barrister on their behalf. Some barristers do a lot of direct access work and do so very well. Others choose to stick with tradition and keep their practice strictly on a referral basis, meaning that all of their work comes from solicitors 
who respect their ability and expertise enough to choose to brief them. If you want to know more about direct access, there's a fuller explanation on my website and I've put a link to a page all about this in the notes. As ever, for the law mentioned in this podcast, I've posted additional links in the notes also. Back then to Aidan, Bianca and Connor. They're now waiting in the cells in the Crown Court and all are wondering if they're going to get bail. It's also a question each of their barristers knows they'll be asked, since will I get bail and will I go to prison are perhaps the questions asked of criminal barristers more than any others. Aidan meets his barrister Gabriella Haddon, Bianca meets her barrister Henry Irwin, and Connor meets his barrister Ivy Jewell. If you happen to be in trouble with the law at this moment, please don't try to brief Gabriella, Henry or Ivy, since although much of what you will hear about them and their approach in court is loosely based on a wide variety of real people and is an accurate portrayal of how barristers work, they are actually fictitious names and, to use the legal jargon, any resemblance to any individual, living or dead, is entirely coincidental. And sure enough, when Aidan, Bianca and Connor meet them, they ask about bail, which is what I'll go into more detail about now. The main statute which governs the granting of bail is the Bail Act 1976, which is a long and sometimes complex piece of legislation, but I'll do my best to keep it simple. Section 4, subsection 1 of the Bail Act 1976 creates what many people and many lawyers call the right to bail in criminal proceedings. More accurately, there's no right to bail as such, but rather a presumption in favour of bail for people charged with most criminal offences. The presumption applies to people who are convicted of an offence, but only where sentence in their case is adjourned for preparation of a pre-sentence report, which is the sort of report that's prepared by a probation officer. The presumption, therefore, does not apply to people who have been convicted and sentenced and are seeking to appeal against that conviction or sentence, although they are still entitled to apply for bail, even if they don't have a presumption operating in their favour. The presumption also doesn't apply to people who are committed for sentence from the magistrate's court to the Crown Court, a situation which we looked at in episode 4. Even where the presumption or right to bail applies, it can still be set aside on the ground set out in Schedule 1, Part 1, Paragraph 2 of the Bail Act, which provides that bail can be declined where the judge is satisfied that there are substantial grounds for believing that the defendant, if released on bail, with or without bail conditions, would either fail to surrender, i.e. not turn up at court, commit another offence whilst on bail, or interfere with witnesses or otherwise obstruct the course of justice, whether in relation to himself or any other person. Other grounds for not granting bail include situations where the defendant was already on bail at the time of the new offence and also under what's known as the domestic abuse ground, where a defendant need not be granted bail, and I quote from paragraph 2ZA of Schedule 1, Part 1 of the Bail Act, if the court is satisfied that there are substantial grounds for believing that, if released on bail, the accused would commit an offence while on bail by engaging in conduct that would or would be likely to cause physical or mental injury to an associated person or an associated person to fear physical or mental injury, end of quote. 
An associated person here means, in summary, relatives, spouses, civil partners, people who live together or are or have been in an intimate relationship. Bail can also be refused for a defendant's own protection, as well as for the more obvious reason that they are already in custody for another offence, such as when a new offence comes to light when a prisoner is serving a sentence for something else. Less usual is the power to refuse bail where there is not enough time properly to consider the application and further information is required. In that case, usually a short remand in custody will be required before the information needed can be obtained. It's worth mentioning that in the ordinary run of cases, there's also a backstop provision contained in paragraph 1A of Schedule 1 Part 1. And this provides that the right to decline bail in most circumstances does not apply to an unconvicted adult defendant where it appears to the court there's no real prospect that the defendant will receive a custodial sentence. I say in most cases, but this obviously wouldn't apply to someone who's already in custody serving a sentence for another offence, since you can't be remanded on bail for one offence while also serving a sentence or on remand in custody for another so if, for example, the time comes that your sentence on the first offence is at an end, you can then make an application for bail on the second offence at that time. So those are the grounds for refusing bail. But how does a judge conclude that there are substantial grounds that a defendant would do one or more of the things listed in Schedule 1, which usually amount to failing to surrender committing further offences or interfering with witnesses or otherwise obstructing the course of justice. Some assistance is provided by Schedule 1, Part 1, Paragraph 9 of the Bail Act, which refers to a number of factors the court can take into account, and these are as follows. The nature and seriousness of the offence, the character antecedents, associations and community ties of the defendant, the defendant's record as respects the fulfilment of his obligations under previous grants of bail in criminal proceedings, the strength of the evidence of his having committed the offence, or if the court is satisfied that there are substantial grounds for believing the defendant, if released on bail, whether subject to conditions or not, would commit an offence while on bail, the risk that the defendant may do so by engaging in conduct that would or would be likely to cause physical or mental injury to any person other than the defendant. And finally, any other matters which appear to the court to be relevant. To look at these in more detail, any court looking at a defendant and deciding whether there are substantial grounds for refusing bail will look first at the seriousness of the alleged offence. The relevance of this is that the more serious the offence, the heavier the sentence is likely to be, and the greater likelihood, therefore, that a defendant will avoid justice by absconding and failing to appear at court for trial or sentence. After looking at the offence, the court will then turn its attention to the character of the defendant. Is he or she someone who has committed offences in the past? Or worse, is this someone who has committed offences in the past which are the same as or in any way similar to the offence they now face? Does their previous behaviour, for example, suggest in a case of violence that they have a propensity to behave violently or in a dishonesty case that they have a propensity to behave dishonestly? If the defendant does have previous convictions, the court will look at whether these were committed when the defendant was already on bail for another offence. 
If they were, the court is unlikely to be inclined to act in a defendant's favour. We'll probably have little trouble in finding that there are substantial grounds to believe the defendant will commit further offences whilst on bail. Worse still is a defendant who has a conviction for a bail act offence, since that to a judge will be a clear demonstration that they're not to be trusted and it will certainly make any bail application far more difficult. Similarly, if the defendant has previous convictions, the court will look at the sentences they received. If, for example, they received a community order with an unpaid work requirement, did they complete the unpaid work without issue? Or did they have to return to court for breach proceedings? If the latter then their record discloses a failure to abide by court requirements, and this will undoubtedly tend against them, making it more likely in a judge's view that there's someone who will fail to attend court and answer bail in the future, or if bail conditions are proposed to abide by any of those conditions. When considering the strength of the evidence, the court's entitled to go into some analysis and consider not just how strong the evidence is, but also the role that a defendant played. If, for example, in a conspiracy case, a defendant's role is very minor at best, the court may well be more inclined to grant them bail than it would be to a key player. And where there's a real question mark over whether the prosecution will be able to prove a case against an individual defendant, then the court is far more likely to grant bail rather than incarcerate someone who has every chance of avoiding conviction. Concerning the community ties of a defendant, much of this relates to how planted a defendant is geographically or in his community. For example, if a lorry driver who is charged with causing death by dangerous driving is a foreign national and has no family or other ties to the UK, he'll be considered a high risk of absconding compared to a family man who lives locally. Similarly, someone who has no settled living accommodation will be considered a higher risk than someone who lives at home with their family or perhaps has a mortgage or other financial responsibilities. When considering the associations of a defendant, these can include whether the defendant is, for example, a known member of a gang who regularly engage in criminal conduct, such as drug dealing, violence, or all of these things. Or they may be known to have close ties to a criminal organisation or even to a known criminal family. All of these matters can be raised by the prosecution in support of their argument that there are substantial grounds to believe that the defendant will, for example, commit further offences, interfere with witnesses or otherwise obstruct the course of justice. On the witness interference point, some defendants will certainly try, whether themselves or by instructing others, to get to the prosecution witnesses in a case. In fact, over and above the concept of bail, there are specific criminal offences which cover this, and these are the offences of witness or juror interference and also of taking revenge under Section 51 of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act 1994. These are either way offences which will almost certainly go to the Crown Court where the maximum sentence is five years imprisonment. Interfering with witnesses or evidence may also amount to the common law offence of perverting the course of justice, which carries a maximum penalty of life imprisonment. If that weren't enough, witness interference is also a contempt of court, punishable by up to two years imprisonment in the Crown Court or one month's imprisonment in the Magistrates Court. And if bail is granted in any case, deliberate witness interference is almost certain to result in remanding custody and any further application for bail being refused. 
When it comes to making an application for bail, the defence will argue, where they can, that the test of substantial grounds to believe has not been met. So are there really substantial grounds to believe that the defendant will fail to surrender, commit further offences, or interfere with witnesses or the course of justice itself? Where, on the face of it, such grounds do exist, the defence will seek to offer bail conditions which they hope will ameliorate the risk to the extent that substantial grounds no longer exist. So, for example, if the judge considers that there are substantial grounds to believe that a defendant from a local area is likely to interfere with witnesses from that same area, the defence may offer, but only if they have instructions from the defendant to do so, a condition that the defendant lives with a relative several hundred miles away in another part of the country. They may offer a further condition that he's subject to a curfew at that address or has to report regularly to the police station. They may offer an electronic monitoring condition, i.e. a tag, so that his whereabouts can be tracked, and also a non-contact condition so that he can't contact prosecution witnesses, either directly or indirectly, such as by contacting someone on social media. A good package of conditions can be sufficient to sway a judge in favour of granting bail. But where the offence is a serious one, the evidence appears strong and a defendant has a history of offending or failing to abide by previous court orders, the outlook can be grim and a judge may and often will be unwilling to take any chances. In fact, there have been some well-publicised cases some time ago that caught the attention of judges, criminal lawyers, government and the wider public and which led to some tightening up of bail and the granting of bail. One such example was the case of Gary Weddle, a former Metropolitan Police inspector who murdered his wife Sandra at their home using a cable tie, then attempted to stage it as a suicide. He was initially believed until a post-mortem examination together with other evidence strongly suggested otherwise. Weddle was charged by Bedfordshire Police with his wife's murder and appeared before a Crown Court judge on three occasions eventually being granted bail with a £200,000 surety, often known as a bail bond in US courts, which is a formal undertaking of another person to pay that sum in the event the defendant absconds, the surety being provided on this occasion by Weddell's barrister brother. Breach of a bail condition, even if imposed by the Crown Court, is dealt with in the Magistrates' Court, and Gary Weddell, despite breaching his conditions of bail, was nonetheless released again on bail by magistrates. While on bail, he'd taken up clay pigeon shooting. He then stole a shotgun from a shooting club, then used that gun to shoot and kill his mother-in-law, and then to kill himself. Understandably, at least in the heat of the moment, it made many people think twice about whether defendants in murder cases should ever be granted bail at all. But if bail is already looking a little difficult for our three defendants, Aidan, Bianca and Connor, then they haven't yet heard the worst of it. Since the approach taken to granting bail in murder cases is different to the usual approach which is followed in the criminal courts. In murder cases, there is no presumption in favour of bail, or right to bail as it's often referred to. In fact, the position is quite the reverse. Under Schedule 1, Part 1, Paragraph 6ZA of the Bail Act 1976, a defendant charged with murder may not be granted bail unless 
the court is of the opinion that there is no significant risk that the accused will, if released on bail, commit an offence that would or would be likely to cause physical or mental injury to any other person. So that's the task at hand for Gabriella Haddon on behalf of Aidan, Henry Irwin on behalf of Bianca, and Ivy Jewell on behalf of Connor. Before we get to the bail application itself, I should mention that the test for bail is also different for other serious offences where the defendant has a previous conviction also for a serious offence. To be specific, Section 25 of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act 1994 provides that where a person has been convicted of a serious offence and the offences listed in Section 25 include murder, attempted murder, manslaughter, rape and other very serious sexual offences and they have a previous conviction for any of those offences which does not need to have been the same offence that they're currently charged with Bail will be granted only where there are exceptional circumstances which justify it. So again, there's a complete reversal of the presumption in favour of bail that exists in many other cases. Back now to Aidan, Bianca and Connor, whose case has just been called on in court. The barristers leave the cells and make their way upstairs to the courtroom. And the three defendants head for the same destination, but by a more secure route, accompanied by court custody staff to the dock while they'll stand and face the judge. Murder cases, in terms of their seriousness, are classed as Class 1A offences in the court system, which means they must be referred to the resident judge in any Crown Court centre. The resident judge is a senior circuit judge who has management over much of what occurs in his or her Crown Court. Circuit judges need to be specifically authorised to hear certain cases, including cases of murder. And authorisation means experience and additional training relating to that particular area of the law. You can take it for granted that the resident judge who enters court today will be fully aware of the test for granting bail in murder cases. Resident judges also usually occupy, befitting their status, the largest courtroom in any Crown Court centre. And in any court building, the largest courtroom is usually court number one. And that's where Aidan, Bianca and Connor now stand. They're in what's known as a secure dock, with a wooden surround up to waist height, and beyond that and up to the ceiling, toughened glass designed principally to stop them getting out but also equally effective in stopping anyone else getting in. There's a chair for each of them in the dock and chairs for those guarding them, but not much else. Looking directly ahead, they can see the judge sitting in an elevated position. Above him, the royal coat of arms, and in front of him, in a lower position, the court clerk. It's worth mentioning here that in the magistrate's court, the justice's legal adviser used to be known as the court clerk, but the functions of each in the Magistrates' Court and the Crown Court are very different. In the Crown Court, the court clerk keeps track of what's going on in each case and is the person who addresses the defendant during arraignment when the charge is put to a defendant for a plea of guilty or not guilty. And the court clerk's also the person who asks the jury for a person if they've agreed upon their verdict and what that verdict is. But we haven't reached that stage yet. All the court clerk needs to do at this stage is confirm with the defendants that they are indeed Aidan Johnson, Bianca Jones and Connor Williams. From where they're sitting, 
Bianca looks to her left and can see the two rows of six chairs, one behind the other, where the jury will sit at trial. To her right, she can see the witness box on a raised platform, ensuring that any witness will be in a raised position for all to see. Close to this is the public gallery and press bench, which she notices has attracted numerous court reporters. Deprived of her phone, she hasn't been aware of the level of press attention the case is now getting. The public gallery also, just as at the magistrate's court, is full, both of her family members and those of Aidan and Connor. But there are also many people she doesn't recognise, many of whom are the friends and family of the deceased Daniel Clark. The fact that they are now together, and in larger numbers than before, creates a tense and intense atmosphere, as if each side of the family and their wider supporters have drawn a line between them and dared the opposing side to cross it. Although, of course, none of these people are actually to blame for what occurred just four long nights ago. And between these two sides, between the jury seats and the witness box, are three long tables with fixed seats behind them. The place for the barristers, solicitors and other legal staff to sit. The barristers take seats behind the desk at the front of the court, closest to the clerk and the judge. The defence, as is the convention, on the side closest to where the jury sit, and the prosecution barrister on the side closest to the witness box. In bail applications, even though it's a defence application, the conventional approach is for the judge to ask the prosecution to start by outlining the facts of the case, as well as the specific objections to bail that they have. It's then for the defence to stand up and make their case for bail. And in this case, that's exactly what happens. The prosecution barrister, having introduced by surname the defence barristers and whom they were representing, outlines the facts generally in accordance with the case summary that was prepared for the magistrate's court, and he does so in this way. Your Honour, this is a case of Friday night, Saturday morning violence outside a nightclub, which this court will be all too familiar with, albeit on this occasion one with tragic results. The three defendants, Aidan Johnson, Bianca Jones and Connor Williams, are jointly charged with the murder of Daniel Clark, aged 23, following an altercation outside Bradley's nightclub at around 1am last Saturday. It seems that, following an altercation between the defendant Aidan Johnson and the deceased inside the nightclub in the early hours of Saturday morning, both were ejected by door staff. Matters quickly escalated on the street, whereupon the deceased was attacked by all three defendants. During this attack... A bottle was smashed on the ground, then deliberately forced into the deceased's face by, say the prosecution, the defendant Aidan Johnson. Such was the impact that the deceased fell to the ground with serious facial injuries, injuries that led to his death later that same day. Post-mortem examination revealing the cause of death to be a hypoxic ischemic brain injury due to cardiac arrest coupled with alcohol and drug intoxication and sharp force injury to the face. The prosecutions say that the defendants Bianca Jones and Connor Williams encouraged and intended, by words and conduct, the deliberate infliction of really serious injury to Daniel Clark and are jointly responsible for his murder, in particular making threats that the defendant Aidan Johnson should both cut and kill the deceased, a matter which was sadly borne out by events early that Saturday morning. 
Upon the deceased collapsing, all three defendants ran in a bid to escape the scene, but were quickly tracked on CCTV running through the town centre. Alerted to their whereabouts by CCTV operators, the police were quickly able to apprehend and arrest them, at that stage on suspicion of wounding with intent. Daniel Clark, meanwhile, received emergency medical treatment but died later that same day. All defendants took advantage of their right to legal advice and were interviewed on suspicion of Section 18 wounding, the deceased still then being alive. Only the defendant, Aidan Johnson, whose previous convictions for violence I will refer to in a moment, gave a responsive interview. In summary, he denied responsibility for causing any injury to the deceased, denying in fact ever having a bottle. He did accept having an argument in the nightclub with the deceased as a result of which they had pushed each other. He accepted that they had left the club, after which he claimed to have been confronted by the deceased, who, he said, punched him, as a result of which he did no more than defend himself. He appears to accept that his co-defendants, Bianca Jones and Connor Williams, who by this stage had joined him outside, engaged in making threats, albeit these were, to use his words, silly threats. When asked who was responsible for using the bottle as a weapon, he simply answered, it wasn't me, without either denying that an attack had occurred or suggesting responsibility for that attack lay elsewhere. He then said that his recollection was all a blur and he did not know what had happened. As for why he'd fled the scene if he bore no responsibility, he explained he'd done so out of panic. The defendant, Aidan Johnson, is 23 years of age and has two convictions for violence, both dealt with by local magistrates. And Your Honour will have a copy, I hope, of his previous convictions. The judge nodded in the affirmative. The prosecutor continued. He was convicted at trial of assault occasioning actual bodily harm 18 months ago. The brief facts are that following a refusal by a doorman to allow him entry to a nightclub, he returned in a state of intoxication remonstrated with the doorman, then punched him in the face. He claimed to have been acting in self-defence, but this claim was rejected by the magistrates, who convicted him and sentenced him to a community order with 100 hours of unpaid work. This was not his first conviction, since he has a second conviction for violence, a matter of common assault some 30 months ago, for which, following a plea of guilty, he received a £300 fine and an order for £200 compensation. I'm afraid at this stage I have not been provided with the facts of this offence. It appears, however, that this defendant has exhibited a propensity for violence and a bad character application will be made in due course with the intention of placing these matters before the jury. Turning to the defendant Bianca Jones, she is 22 years of age and has no convictions or cautions recorded against her. During her police interview, she gave a prepared statement and answered no comment to all questions put to her. In that prepared statement, she said that an argument between the deceased and Aidan Johnson, her partner, had erupted on the dance floor. An argument, it seems, that was about her. After they were rejected, she followed them outside, where she saw Johnson being assaulted by the deceased, who, she said, was supported by at least two others who were issuing threats. For her part, she denied making threats or having any responsibility for causing injury. She in fact denied seeing any injury to the deceased. She claims to have left the scene because she was following her boyfriend. 
Moving now to the defendant, Connor Williams. He is 23 years of age and has one conviction some 18 months ago for making off without payment. Following his plea of guilty, he was sentenced to a £200 fine and a compensation order of £81.25, being the price of the fuel he made no payment for. The defendant also gave a prepared statement, refusing to answer any questions put to him by police. In that statement, he accepted presence outside the nightclub, at which stage he said he had witnessed a fight between the defendant, Aidan Johnson, the deceased, and a number of the deceased's friends. For his part, he claimed to have done no more than defend himself, without specifying what that actually meant. He denied any responsibility for assaulting the deceased or causing him any injury. According to the prepared statement, he ran from the scene because he was following his friend, the defendant, Aidan Johnson, and wished, he said, to get to a place of safety. The prosecutor then, as barristers often do when they want to check that the judge knows the law, asked the judge if he wished to be, in inverted commas, reminded of the bail test applicable in case of murder, to which the judge gave him a hard stare. Both the judge and barristers and the defendant sitting in the enclosed dock knew that bail would be granted only if the judge was of the opinion that there was no significant risk that the accused would, if released on bail, commit an offence that would or would be likely to cause physical or mental injury to any other person. And in reaching that decision, the court would have regard to the nature and seriousness of the offence, the suspect's character and previous convictions, and his record in relation to previous grants of bail. The prosecutor said regarding Aidan that rather than there being no significant risk, there was, in fact, on the contrary, a clear and identifiable risk that he would commit further violent offences, since that was clearly demonstrated, he said, by the defendant's own escalating record. That he now faced such a serious charge also placed him at risk of absconding and his record for violence in such a sensitive and serious case revealed yet another significant risk of interfering with witnesses, not least the security staff at the local nightclub. The defendant having a record of attacking a person occupying such a position before. Regarding Bianca, the prosecutor focused on her relationship with the principal defendant, Aidan Johnson, and referred to the threats made to kill and cut the deceased during the fight. Such was the seriousness of the charge she faced, and such was her relationship to Aidan Johnson, whom she claimed was acting in self-defence, that it was not, he submitted, a case where it could be said that she was of no significant risk of causing physical or mental injury to any other person. Precisely the same arguments were advanced against bail for Connor Williams. His previous conviction, it was accepted, was irrelevant in the circumstances. So that's the task at hand for Gabriella Haddon on behalf of Aidan, Henry Irwin on behalf of Bianca, and Ivy Jewell on behalf of Connor. All stood up in turn and addressed the judge on behalf of their clients. Gabriella Haddon for Aidan stressed that her client had been out of trouble for 18 months, had abided by all previous court orders, was a young man in work and lived with his parents, both of whom were in court, with whom he had a close and loving relationship. 
This offence was far away from any charge he had faced previously, and he denied responsibility for causing the injury, specifically for using a bottle. The case at this stage was mired in confusion and not supported by clear and uncontroverted evidence. He was, Miss Haddon submitted, willing to abide by any conditions the court felt appropriate, including a tagged curfew, non-contact with any prosecution witnesses and exclusion from the vicinity of the nightclub. Despite the seriousness of the offence she submitted, bail could safely be granted. Henry Irwin for Bianca stressed the fact that even on the prosecution case, she was not the principal offender and that they were unable in their opening to ascribe any threat made by her or any specific violence used by her. This was, he submitted, guilt by association and not guilt supported by clear and compelling evidence. No mention had even been made, he said, of any threat from a female voice. He then stressed that she was a defendant of excellent character, having never been to a court or police station before, and having not a single conviction or caution recorded against her. He submitted that it was wholly speculative to suggest that she would somehow seek revenge on behalf of her boyfriend, a relationship, he suggested, which was now as good as over. She lived with her parents in a close relationship, was also in full-time employment, and could properly be regarded as exhibiting no risk in terms of bail. Nonetheless, she would accept and abide by any bail conditions which the court felt appropriate, including all those referred to on behalf of the defendant, Aidan Johnson. Finally, it was the turn of Ivy Jewell on behalf of Connor. She made many of the points relied upon during the submissions for Bianca. He was not the principal offender, the evidence was confused and the threats could not be specifically ascribed to him. For joint enterprise to be worthy of consideration at any trial, she said, the prosecution would have to do better than that. Despite her client's previous conviction, there was nothing on his record to indicate that he had ever turned to violence or had any propensity for violence. She was good, thought Connor, and this was going well. But it was at this point that Ivy Jewell noticed a police officer approach the CPS clerk who sat behind the prosecution barrister and hand him a note, which was quickly read and then passed to the prosecutor, who then stood up. And he said this, I do apologise, Your Honour, but I have just received a note which suggests that the antecedents for the defendant, Connor Williams, are incorrect. It appears that there may well be, indeed, a more extensive criminal history than at first we realised. That the judge was unhappy was an understatement, especially in a case as serious as this. But as any criminal barrister will know, even in very serious cases, mistakes occur. I should say that the word antecedents here simply means a defendant's criminal record, which is kept on the police national computer. Having let off steam, the judge then adjourned the case pending receipt of the updated information. In fact, it arrived within minutes, and Ivy took it downstairs to the cells to see Connor. I won't repeat his words, but his face said it all. In fact, the criminal history was not extensive, but it was extremely problematic. 
since it revealed that Connor had been jointly charged, jointly tried and jointly convicted with Aidan for the ABH offence that Aidan had been found guilty of at trial. The offence outlined by the prosecutor where Aidan, and now also Connor, had returned to a nightclub in a state of intoxication, argued with the doorman and then punched him in the face. An offence Aidan, and now also Connor, had denied by claiming he was acting in lawful and reasonable self-defence. Connor had also, the record revealed, received a community order with 80 hours rather than Aidan's 100 hours of unpaid work. The lower level presumably to reflect the fact that, unlike Aidan, he had no earlier convictions for violence. Connor accepted that this was his conviction. He'd just been hoping that somehow it had been lost in the system and forgotten about. Sadly, Ivy told him, it had now come back to bite him. Back in court later that morning, Ivy bravely continued, as if nothing had happened that in any way undermined the value of her previous submissions, other than, of course, the fact that neither she nor the court had been aware of the conviction that had now been brought to their attention. But your client knew all about it, said the judge. That was something she had to accept, but she fairly made the point that one would expect the prosecution, in a case such as this, to have their house in order. One could only imagine what else had been done incorrectly in the investigation and prosecution of this offence, and it was not for a defendant charged with an offence to bring to the attention of the prosecution or the court errors and omissions in the prosecution's presentation of the case. Like the others, she offered all bail conditions of any relevance, referred similarly to Connor's loving and caring family, submitted that Connor Williams posed no risk, and when she was finished, she sat down. The prosecution stood up to address the court on the matter of the new previous conviction, but the judge said there was nothing further at that stage he needed to hear. That, in itself, to the defence barristers, was not a good sign. The judge said he would make some directions before he ruled on bail. He set a provisional trial date and asked the prosecution and defence to liaise with each other and the court to ensure that all witnesses would be available. He set a date for the plea and trial preparation hearing and he gave further directions about service of the prosecution case and about ensuring that an indictment was ready for the defendants to be arraigned at the next hearing, when they would be formally asked to enter their pleas of guilty or not guilty. And he then asked the defendants to stand up. Aidan Johnson and Connor Williams, he said, I have listened with care to the submissions made on your behalf. I have given full consideration also to the nature and seriousness of the offence and to your respective character and previous convictions. Having done so, I am unable to conclude that either of you pose no significant risk of committing an offence on bail that would or would be likely to cause physical or mental injury to any person. And, as such, you are both remanded in custody. Bianca Williams, he continued, I am able, in your case to reach a different conclusion. Notwithstanding the seriousness of the offence, I am satisfied from all that I have heard that you pose no significant risk that you will, if released on bail, 
commit an offence that would or would be likely to cause physical or mental injury to any other person. You will, however, be subject to extensive bail conditions. The judge went on to impose a condition of residence and curfew from 7pm to 7am at her home address, electronic monitoring with a tag, exclusion from a defined area around the nightclub and non-contact with all known prosecution witnesses. From there, all three defendants had to go down to the cells, from where Aidan and Connor would return to prison and from where Bianca would be processed to leave to go home with her parents until the next hearing. When they reached the bottom of the stairs, the boys went one way and Bianca another. Aidan walked away and back into his cell. Connor started walking, then stopped. He then turned towards Bianca, who stared straight back at him. Do the right thing, said Connor. You know what you did. As we get ever closer to trial, that brings episode five to a close. It just leaves me to say that I hope you're enjoying this podcast and that it's serving its purpose, at the very least, by bringing the criminal justice system to life and revealing how the system really works, warts and all. As ever, thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe. And I look forward to seeing you all again for episode six. Thank you.